this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, it's John Warlow. I wanted to record this quick message to let you know that I've got a new book that's now available called The Art of Selling Your Business. And really, it's a distillation of some of the best practices I've heard from some of the smartest entrepreneurs I've interviewed for this show. You know, having done now more than 300 plus interviews for Built to Sell Radio, I've seen that there's this small group of founders who seem to really have incredible exits, ones where they make life-changing money from the sale of their company. And what I've tried to do is really analyze what are the transferable lessons among that small cadre of winning exits. I put those into an action plan, a bit of a, a just add water recipe card for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. The book is called The Art of Selling Your Business. It's available anywhere you buy books. Have you ever heard of something called platform risk? If you're a listener to this show, you may remember a few weeks ago, I interviewed A.D. Pinar out of South Africa, where he talked about the sale of Convergio. Convergio grew very quickly on the back of its relationship with Shopify. You could get Convergio from the Shopify app store. And as Shopify grew, so too did Convergio. Only problem is that you become beholden to one company and it can ultimately destroy your company, which is something my next guest, Andrew Gazdecki, found out the hard way. He built a wonderful business building iPhone apps, mobile apps for clients. And he'll describe the entire story of how Apple almost changed his life for the worse forever. He'll talk about how he emailed Tim Cook and actually give you the actual email address to reach Tim Cook if you're interested uh, and how that turned around the controversy that he was in with Apple. He'll talk a little bit about early in the conversation, his distribution model and how he changed it, which led to an inflection point of very fast growth by just one fundamental change to his distribution model for his company. He'll talk about the downside of reaching the Inc. 500 list of fastest growing companies in the United States, how to make sure that you don't get held ransom by your employees who have perhaps more technical knowledge than you. Uh, He'll talk also about how to perform reference checks on your potential acquirer. Andrew will also share some tax advice on how to ensure, especially if you're a U.S. citizen, how to reduce your tax bill. He'll also speak candidly why he ended up in a puddle of tears after selling his business for life-changing money. Here to tell you the entire story is Andrew Gazdecki. Andrew Gazdecki, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. Excited to be here. Are you a Tigers fan? I can see the Detroit Tigers baseball <laughs> hat. Uh, I was the short. Well, yes, I was born in Detroit. A lot of people don't know that. And then I moved to a town called San Clemente when I was three. Sure. God just decided, you know, I needed to be in a better area. <laughs> luckily, I always kind of joke um, if it wasn't Eminem, it was going to be me. Um, but no, I grew up in Detroit. I was born in Detroit, grew up in uh, Southern California. Now I live in uh, San Mateo Bay area. Nice. Nice. So tell us a little bit about this company business apps. What did you guys do? It's a good question. So it was a company I started in college. I was 21 when I launched the company and we helped make mobile app development really simple and affordable for small businesses. So, so if I'm a, like a lawn care company and I wanted to create like a way for my customers to book a, an appointment, you could use business apps to create a mobile application for that? Exactly. So okay. this was 2010 when we launched the company. So we started with just iPhone apps. The backstory behind that too was um, I had a job board that connected mobile developers with businesses. And I kept seeing people post the same sort of job requests over and over and over, mostly luxury restaurants to start. 
and they're paying like $50,000 for these really simple applications. But this is like 2010 when no one knew how to develop iPhone apps. Everyone was like rushing to get onto mobile phones. So I sold that job board um, for what felt like $10 trillion in college <laughs> and used that as seed funding for business. Apps. How much did you sell it for? It was like 50 grand or something like that. It felt like 10 trillion. <laughs> in college, that was the most meaningful exit of my life. Nah, it's up there. That was <laughs> one where it was, because I, I, candidly, I grew up pretty poor. I didn't grow up with a lot of means, you know, food stamps. My uh, mom, my dad passed away when I was six. Um, so, you know, entrepreneurship for me was always like a way out. And so I was on student loans. So 50,000 for me. Yeah, that was, add some zeros on that. That's how that felt. Awesome. So you get this 50 grand and you build the beta of this thing called business apps. Where does it go from there? Yeah. So we initially started cold calling restaurants. So we built a small template that was terrible. Basically we could only use it ourselves internally to actually build the apps for clients. But the idea was to have like a do it yourself app builder. And we eventually got there, but we bootstrapped the company. So we only raised a hundred thousand dollars, um, initially 50,000 from a local angel investor by the name of Christian Friedland, who pretty much changed my life. Um, he founded a company called build.com, which is, basically Home Depot online. They do like 2 billion in GMB a year. And he basically helped mentored me and helped me build that company. But yeah, we started out cold calling. That didn't go so well. We acquired probably our first 70 customers cold calling. But the problem was it's super hard to sell to small businesses. It's a, it's, it's a relationship type sale. And so we had this eureka moment and I'll never forget it. And it was a customer who had built, we were lucky because we got a bunch of press early on. So we were featured in TechCrunch, Business Insider, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. We had this compelling story. It was like college kids making mobile apps for small businesses for less than the price of a newspaper ad. Um, And so we got some inbound people using our platform and started, they had to spend hours trying to figure out how to make it work. And so someone in Switzerland built some really nice apps for some really large Ramada hotels. And I reached out to him and I'm like 22. And I just thought, Hey, this guy is probably really wealthy and very successful. and might have some advice on how to grow my business. And I talked to him and he tells me he doesn't own the hotels. Um, He was an agency that was doing the marketing for the hotels. And then my next question was immediately, okay, how can I get you to sell more of these mobile apps and you're building them for your customers. And that was the business model of business apps is it was a do-it-yourself app builder for small businesses. So yes, your lawn company could schedule reservations. We made a lot of apps for hair salons, bars, gyms, attorneys, any small business, you could, even celebrities, um, athletes, uh, Jordan Belfort from Wolf of Wall Street, um, some rappers, like we made more mobile apps than any other company in the world. We produced at one point we were powering 5% of the total apps in the iTunes app store, which is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, so what that customer said was, you know, if you can remove the branding of business apps from these mobile apps, I'd be able to go to my customers and sell these for a higher price. Cause they look at your website and they see the pricing and I can't really justify, you know, a thousand dollar setup fee or a hundred dollars a month to manage the app. And so the business model behind business apps spelled B-I-Z-N-E-S-S apps.com, which is actually still up and you can still build apps with it if you want. Um, We white labeled the platform and then we began partnering with thousands of web design companies all over the globe. So we partnered with 5,000 agencies at its peak Um, translated the platform in 40 different languages, some public companies, um, definitely some brand names that you would know. But that's where our trajectory went from, you know, creating one app at a time to selling hundreds of apps at a time, and then eventually thousands of apps at a time. So really these organizations that have these pre-existing relationships with small business owners, and we would just focus on the technology, leverage those relationships, and it was a win-win for us and then a win for our partners as well. How much was 
like if I was coming to you direct and 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 subscribing to biz apps, uh, business apps, excuse me, if I'm the lawn care company, what would I have paid? And then what would the agency where I'm going to build out a hundred different apps have paid for the same service effectively? So if you came directly to business apps, we changed our pricing multiple times like most SaaS companies do. We started at 29 a month and then we moved to 49 a month and then we moved to 99 a month. If you worked with a reseller, you would typically pay a higher price, a much higher price. So you pay, sometimes some partners of ours were charging a one to $10,000 set fee and then one to $500 a month to manage the mobile application. And the beauty behind that was the long care company probably isn't the best at building a mobile app. So they would gladly pay for that because they didn't know what features to add, how to make the app look good, what, when to send out push notifications, stuff like that. And so that's how the partners were able to justify that additional cost because they would add a layer of service on top of the technology that we built. And how did you, I'm assuming the early model was, as you said, you know, you got a bit of press and TechCrunch in New York Times and people were coming directly to you. How did you go about signing up these agencies? Did you hire some salespeople to go call on them or what was that model like? Yeah, so we moved almost, we shifted almost immediately because the first partner that signed up, we didn't have any of the white label functionality built out. So I told this individual in Switzerland, his name's Raul, um, and his, his company is called uh, Vendomat. I still keep in touch with them today because he essentially changed the course of the business forever. So, um, we made an agreement that I would build out the functionality if he agreed to pre-subscribe to a certain number of apps. I can't remember the exact number, but I believe it was like a 2000 a month contract. So that was 24,000 a year. And I think our revenue at that time was 24,000 a year. So the company doubled from that one customer. So from there, and we were still all in college. So I was, I had a minor in entrepreneurship that I was doing. Again, I was taking out uh, student loans to allow me to stay in school and not go get a job. And I didn't go to any of my entrepreneurship classes, failed all of them, but focused on the business. So at that time we we're all in college, um, started recruiting some of my friends that were in college to help with sales, help with customer support, uploading iPhone apps. If you've ever uploaded an iPhone app, it takes about 45 minutes. We eventually automated that process, but yeah, we went all in on the reseller model when we started to see some traction and really just recruited friends. Anyone who wanted to work at business apps at CSU Chico State, I said, come on in. I could use your help 100%. And and so how big did you get this business. I'm, I'm curious, Raul made the first offer of 24K a year. Like, like how big did it get using these resellers to, to, to go to market? In terms of like revenue or mm-hmm. we got to about 10 million in revenue. Um, we grew from zero to 3.6 million in the first 36 months. We got number 58 on the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies for that. Congratulations. Then the next year we were number 91. We grew from zero to 7.2. 3. 3.6 to 7.2, you mean? Well, you're zero to three. I could be getting these numbers wrong, but assume zero to three in the first three years. And then and we went from zero to seven the year after that. So we effectively doubled. I see. If that makes sense. And then what we stopped... And then we stopped sharing numbers with Inc because I had to change my cell phone number every single time we'd be on there. Why? Who would call you? Everyone. Like my friends would send me pictures, like friends that were in recruiting. And they were like, my boss just told me to call everyone on this list. And yeah, if you get on Inc 500, you're going to have a lot of people reaching out. What was the what was the change in strategy that enabled you to go from three to seven in one year? Like, what was that inflection point about? It was really just scaling the team. As simple as that. I think really what what happened in a key to business app success, and I say this all the time, is um, the number one reason that startups succeed is 
market timing. So we were just in the right place at the right time in a gigantic market with an obvious problem selling an obvious solution. And so there was pretty much every web agency in the world was looking to provide mobile solutions to their customers, but they didn't want to hire in-house developers. And so that was our pitch is we could allow you to offer this, you know, way for your customers to connect with their customers on their mobile devices, but you don't have to hire in-house developers. We'll handle all the technology and all the development, all the submissions, the, the app stores, iTunes, and then also Android. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it just made, there was just such a wide demand. Like it got to a point, I'm just trying to think back where we wouldn't even answer, we wouldn't be able to answer sales calls unless people were looking to sign up. I remember one day on Easter, and I'll never forget this. I sent out like a 20% off email from, you know, my laptop in the kitchen saying, hey, the reseller program is 20% off. And we added, I believe, like 70,000 in annual recurring revenue in one day from that. And that's on a Sunday. No one's answering the phones. No one's available. Like it was, it was kind of, it was such a weird ride because I was so young and I didn't have any part job experience, no professional work experience, no sales experience, no marketing experience. I'm not a technical founder. Um, so I hired developers. Um, so I hope that answers your question, but I'm just yeah, gonna, for sure. But I've got a hundred more <laughs> kind of gone down memory lane here. No, this is great. So what was the, I understand the, what the customer would pay if they came to you directly. I also understand what the reseller would charge that customer if they chose to go through a reseller. What did, what was, what did the reseller pay you? What was that model like? Good question. So we had volume discounts. So we had a barrier of entry to enter the reseller program. So the typical package would be if you pay $300 a month, we'd allow you to build 10 apps. So it'd be $30 a month per app. And that would allow you to publish 10 iOS apps. And then we had Android apps entirely free. We eventually started charging for Android apps. Um, and then we eventually expanded out to progressive web apps, which are basically mobile websites that perform like native apps. Um, so yeah, it was essentially $30 a month per app to start. So their margin was pretty sizable. If they were selling apps for hundred dollars a month, we were charging 30. Um, and then as you scaled up and you got over say hundred apps, we would lower that down to 20. If you got over a thousand, we'd lower it down to 15. I don't remember the exact volume scales, but that's kind of how we, you know, priced it. And sometimes we would do it, you know, if we had a really high end customer come in or well-known brand, we would structure something that made sense. Um, like lower volume or lower cost per app based on higher volume. So, but that was the base package and we would have that in place. So because we would train people on how to use the platform, we would support them. We would set up um, all their developer accounts. We do a lot of onboarding with the customers. And so we put that in place. So we didn't have a bunch of people just flooding in saying, I want to be a partner of business apps. And then we would just set up all these accounts and not know that we're going to receive any revenue in return. Yeah. So they had a bar to climb over to get into the. It was essentially a barrier to entry. Yeah. 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 You mentioned you're in your own words, not a technical founder, a non-technical founder, which is kind of a Silicon Valley term, right? Like when you're in the SaaS world, you've got, you know, product people who are developers and then you've got sort of sales and marketing folks. I think it goes beyond in my experience, just, software companies, there's all kinds of companies where, uh, you know, the founder is not necessarily deep in the weeds of what it is they sell. Uh, could be a lawn care company that actually doesn't know much about cutting lawns. The person just has a great sales marketing engine and kind of outsources the actual cutting of the lawn to use a very simplistic example. One of the challenges I think I hear a lot about is when you're a non-technical founder, it can lead people to always feel a little beholden to the technologists and, and a little bit vulnerable, maybe even held hostage from or to those people. Did you ever get that sense of feeling you were kind of in their hands? And, and if so, how did, you, how did you overcome that feeling? I never felt that feeling. 
I built a distribution company, not a software company. I tell my team that all the time. People can copy your features. People can copy, you know, the barriers to entry to software companies are extremely low. Funding is no longer a barrier. Technology is no longer a barrier. You can look at companies today and copy their technology in six months if you build the right team. So we focus heavily on distribution from day one. Like we, and that's how we were able to fund the company without outside investors aside from the three angel investors that I had. Um, but I get what you're saying, but I think what all founders should at least be able to do is manage product teams and have a good relationship with them. So you don't kind of get that sort of like, I'm building the software, I should own the company and it's, you know, and pay fair wages and stuff like that. That, that's probably not the, the best sort of advice, but that's what I did. I, you know, worked really closely. I considered everyone on the development team, you know, part of the company. We outsourced a lot of our developers. So we had engineers in Russia, Brazil, China. Um, we had a big team in China, um, which is kind of interesting. I found one really good developer on Upwork and just asked if, I could hire all of his friends. I just said, do you have a bunch of friends? Cause you're amazing. Um, his name was Ray and I still keep in touch with him today. Um, so I can see why founders can almost use it as an excuse. Like I'm not technical. I need a technical founder. I, I don't buy that. I think if you're not a technical founder, just hire an agency to start. And if you really, you know, are able to figure out the go to market, you're going to find customers and you can, use that revenue to hire in-house engineers. And that's essentially what I did. Got it. How big did you get this company? You mentioned you hit 10 million in ARR. Was there, was there some sort of trigger that made you want to sell the company? Yeah. Um, so we had a little bit of a battle with Apple um, in terms of their guidelines. So there was for people listening that develop mobile apps, uh, approval guideline 4.2.6. There's a bigger story behind that. Um, I won't share the whole thing, but essentially Apple made it a little harder to submit templated applications. And I actually worked with Phil Schiller to have this rejection changed and um, revised. But for Give me Phil Schiller works at Apple. I don't know who he is. He's the guy that gets on stage and, um, basically presents. And so we got his attention. The longer story is we had an app that appeared on the uh, Laura Kelly show. And at the time, Apple was saying the apps that we were developing would no longer be accepted into the app store because they were built with the template. And it had nothing to do with the quality. It had nothing to do with the use cases of the mobile applications. And so, I mean, true story, I emailed Tim Cook tcook at apple.com at like nine o'clock at you know, on a Saturday, just saying like, Hey, check out this mobile app that is on the Laura Kelly show. Um, it was a mobile app that one of our partners made that helped prevent teen suicide. And it had these individuals showing the app and how it helped them. And I just asked a simple question. I said, Hey, so you're banning templated apps. Are you saying that this app isn't helpful or relevant or beneficial to people um, you know, does this not really belong in the app store because it's built a certain way and you're not judging on the quality of the application. And then all of a sudden I see the email being opened, you know, in Cupertino, San Francisco, Berkeley. And I was like, what's going on? And then Phil Schiller responded back and we ended up having a, a little bit of back and forth conversation and, you know, came to terms in terms of what that those guidelines, how they can be revised. And we ended up kind of meeting in the middle that that affected the whole industry. So big companies really went out of business because of that. And so it didn't hurt us in terms of growth. Um, it was just such a stressful time. It was so stressful. My whole team was like, what are we going to do? We had customers that were selling mobile apps to their customers and they weren't able to get these apps approved. And this went on for maybe five months. And wow. And after that, and then once the approval guideline was removed, I was just burned out. I just, I had so much of my net worth tied up in the business, essentially all of it. 
I was getting married in a few months and I, I was just ready to sell. Um, I wanted to move on to something new as well. I was 29 when the business was acquired. So I had kind of grown up building this business and being so young, I wanted to go. There's, I, I love technology. I love startups. But after going toe-to-toe with Apple, you know, like it beat me down a little bit. I wouldn't say that's the reason I sold, but um, the point being there is when you run a business for eight years, especially a startup like business apps, every year can feel like four years. It's so intense. There's so many competitors. And we saw a lot of competitors, you know, blatantly copy our software that built substantial businesses, which I love to see. But it, it was just such a high pressure business and, you know, managing a large team and, you know, so long story short, I just kind of got tired and thought maybe this is a good time to sell the business. And we kind of got an offer that we couldn't refuse. And that's really what happened. I want to get into that next, but before we go there, I mean, take me inside your head. I'm just envisioning Apple announces this change saying they're not going to let templated websites on. Um, you've got almost a hundred employees, I think at the time, right? Yeah. And you've got literally thousands of these agencies selling tens of thousands of apps. Yeah. <laughs> like what's a day in your life like during that five month window? Like take me inside what that looks like. Yeah, it was, it was pretty rough um, because they targeted the blood's us. rushing out of your face as you described this, by the way. <laughs> I mean, just thinking back. So I remember the day that we found out. So Apple announced the, the new guideline change at the Worldwide Developer Conference, which we always dreaded. Like, if you remember when the iPhone 5 came out, they made the screen size a little bit longer. We had to rush to, like, every app that we submitted now had to have these new iPhone 5 size screenshots. So every time WWC came out, we would basically be like, okay, watch this. And then some crazy new thing is going to be released for the iPhone. We're going to have to scramble and update all of our iPhone code and all of our mobile applications. So we watched it and it was announced and we thought, okay, this is probably going to affect mostly like clone games. Like we just make a game and you kind of, you know, Justin Bieber is the main character and then you reskin it and then, you know, Elon Musk is a character and you just kind of keep rescanning it. That's who we thought it was targeting. And then I remember we were doing a mobile app launch at uh, a local restaurant in San Diego and my VP product called me and he said, Hey, one of our partners just had like 50 apps rejected all at once. Oh my God. I'm like, Oh, and I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't a big deal. Um, we'll go, every problem has a solution. We'll figure it out. Uh, you know, I always try to think on the positive side, but, you know, it turned out it was a bigger issue. And so what Apple had essentially done was put a tracker on our mobile application. So any app that we submitted, no matter what, regardless of how it looked, regardless of the functionality that we built into it was rejected immediately. Like not even because you get emails like your app is in review. And then usually when your app goes in review, you get another email like two days later that says your app's approved. It go in review, reject it. So immediate rejections, not even looking at our applications. And so we knew we had a problem. And so from there, we made appeals to Apple for extensions so we could essentially reconfigure our business model because we wanted to work with Apple. We loved Apple. Like they built, helped us build our business, um, but, you know, they kind of helped, uh, you know, they, 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 it was a love and hate relationship, you know, especially with the constant changes and stuff like that. So a little bit of platform risk. Um, but yeah, just thinking back what it was like, um, lots of conversations with customers around what we're doing. We didn't have a lot of answers at the time. Um, a lot of conversations with the team about what we're doing, my communication with Apple. Luckily I had, some good connections into Apple. Um, I had a friend that worked at Instagram. He connected me with one of the head Apple reviewers. So they were very helpful in terms of working with us. So we got like a three month extension, which meant we had to start building more custom applications. And we just were scrambling to reconfigure our software. And then we were scrambling to improve our progressive web applications. 
And so all of that was working, but we still had this like pipeline of applications that we were wanting to submit to Apple, but they'd be rejected. So it, it was, it was tough, but I mean, we got through, we kept pushing and you know, the only reason we really got through that was my team was just so good. Some teams would have quit. Some teams would have been like, and a lot of companies actually, you know, either merged or went out of business entirely or just completely pivoted. But we just worked with Apple and figured out a solution. But it, yeah, it wasn't fun. I'll, I'll just kind of leave it at that. At what point did you email Tim Cook? You mentioned it was kind of five months uh, from WWC to the time you got a, the problem overturned. Like when did you email Tim Cook? It was probably like four. It was, it was a Hail Mary. It was definitely like towards the end of like exhausting all my options of, can we do this? Cause we had some good ideas. We were talking to Apple, like what if, cause their concern was we were submitting thousands of applications, tens of thousands of applications. So they felt that we were essentially spamming the app store, even though we were building many high quality applications for many high quality businesses. And really without a tool like business apps, a small business can't afford a custom application. It costs like forty to $50,000. So we're, you know, almost fighting for small businesses in a sense. Um, we had some suggestions like remove them from search. So, because that's how most, you know, customers of a small business would find out about that. They would directly search. So remove it from the categories or something like that. Um, we had other suggestions like, what if we just uploaded the app into one developer account? That was what we ended up agreeing upon. Um, and that's, I believe the guideline now, I don't check on the Apple guidelines now anymore and it feels great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Tim Cook, um, hopefully he listens to this podcast. Cause I'd like to say thank you if he does. But I, again, this was like three years ago. So it was maybe like, it was definitely towards the tail end of it, but then two weeks, actually probably five months into it. Cause two weeks after I emailed him, the rejection thing was gone, like completely lifted. We were like, okay. And then we found out first because I had spoken directly with uh, the team at Apple and we actually tried to acquire our competitors who thought that it was game over for them. That didn't work out, but um, I was, I was happy regardless to uh, know that we can continue operating, but that was definitely a big speed bump and kind of just opened my eyes. Like, Hey, you know, there's, when you build a business, um, you know, things can change very quickly. You can, you can get disrupted. You can have a big partner change their guidelines. And that really was eye opening to me. And so that really kind of, you know, it, it, it made it very clear it was time to sell the business and move on to, to something else. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a big part of your net worth was tied up in the company. Did you have any sense of what it might be worth at this stage of the game? Yeah. I mean, we, so towards the tail end of business apps growth, kind of started topping off a little bit. So we were hitting, um, we, we had a lot of churn with customers. So as we kind of got to above 10 million in revenue, we were constantly sort of adding new customers, losing customers, because a lot of resellers would sign up, never use the product, cancel. And so growth started to get to, you know, low double digits. Um, so in terms of what the business was worth, you know, typically trading at, you know, one to five X, depending on who the buyer was on one to five X of what ARR annual recurring revenue. So that was kind of all our, our ballpark. Um, but we, at that point in time, we hadn't really, I mean, I thought it was worth like a hundred million dollars, like any entrepreneur. I thought I, I overthought the value of my business, but, um, Yeah. So where do you go from there? So you make the decision, I'm out, like it's just too emotionally draining. I'm 29, I've got, you know, I'm getting married. Like, did you hire an investment banker or what was the next step? So I actually, I hired an investment bank in 2016 
and I worked with them. We had a number of different offers from large strategic companies. We did a full roadshow. Um, we had one large PE firm uh, offer like 15 million for 70% of the company or something like that. Uh, and I was young, I was like 26 or something. So I still had a little bit of gas in the tank and I was like, no, this is a hundred million dollar business. Let's keep going. Okay, but I gotta pause you there. In your own admission, you grew up with food stamps. Six years earlier, 50 grand felt like a trillion dollars. What did it feel like at the age of 26 to be offered $15 million for your company? For 70% of it. So the idea was they were um, going to bring in a new CEO who had prior experience sure. building enterprise mobile applications, take the business up market. I get a stake in sort of seeing them. You know, they were going to do a roll up and all this second stuff. bite of the apple. You probably got that pitch. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I called my mom. I, you know, she was kind of crying. She was like, I'm what so did she you. say? <laughs> I can't remember. It was, I mean, we were in Boston. I was in Boston. So I was just by myself in Boston and just called her because I had just got out of the meeting. And, you know, so, you know, it, it wasn't like a, a done done deal, but we went to like the fanciest restaurant ever. And, like the most expensive steak I've ever had. And this guy, and I won't say the firm, but this guy's worth, I don't know, a trillion dollars or something like that. And, you know, the bankers I was working with say, were like, he never comes to dinner. So the fact that he's coming to dinner is a really good sign. And so, and then I went uh, to get a beer with um, the person that was going to be coming on, who was an entrepreneur in residence at the uh, private equity firm. And he, said, this is going to be life-changing for you. Like, this is going to be awesome. We're super excited to work with you. Um, and I got back to my hotel room and I called my mom. I was like, mom, like, I think, I mean, it went from like, we're interested to like, we're serious. And it, I just didn't know. I didn't, I don't know. Thinking back, I didn't really like understand, you know, I didn't like think like, you know, this is enough money to retire on. You know, I, I think I remember feeling like, you know what, I think we do better than this or something like that, you know, but I was thrilled and I was humbled that they would offer um, something along those lines. What'd your mom say? I can't remember. I don't think she believed me. Uh, my mom, I always try to tell her what I'm doing and, you know, it's, I, I usually will send her press articles and then she's like, uh, or I'll send her like this podcast. And she'll listen to the full thing and then she'll be like, okay, I get what you do. Um, so I don't think she really believed me, if I'm being honest. I think she was like, oh, I'm so proud of you. Like, this is great, you know? I, I, I'm pretty sure she cried, but I don't know. I can't, it was, it, this was five years ago. So this memory is a little fuzzy, but, and it, and it was like 10 p.m. And then, so yeah, I mean, it was surreal. I can say that. I bet. So where does it go from there? After the steak dinner, what was, what'd you do next? Turn down all the offers. Just walked. Okay. So why, what, what happened to make you want to? Well, I thought we could keep pushing. I wanted to keep pushing. I was still excited about the business. I, I still thought we had so much opportunity in front of us. And I just, you know, I, I just, in me, I just, it was a hard sort of decision, but I, I, I guess in another way, business apps was like my baby. Like, I guess I wasn't really mentally ready to give it up. I mean, if I can go back, I would have taken that deal in a second. Cause then I could like put the money in the market, let the, the money grow. And then maybe that 30% would have been, you know, but at the time, I was so emotionally involved in business apps. This truly was my baby. And I felt, I loved everyone I worked with. I loved um, the product. I loved our customers. And I thought, you know, selling might be, you know, might feel like selling out a little bit. Um, 
and it wasn't like a billion dollar offer. And so I, you know, being young, I thought, you know, maybe this is my one chance. Let's maximize it. So that's the best answer I can give you. There's no logic behind it. Let me just understand the math behind it. If there's no logic, let me just do the math. So I'm, I'm, I guess it's around a $20 million valuation if they were going to pay 15 for 70%. I remember the number 30 or 35. 35? Yeah. On the LOI, the valuation was 35 million. And they were going to give you a 15 up front? It could have been 17 or like 18, something, something in those numbers. I would own okay. a minority stake. I would walk with, I think it was 8 million up front and then like seven after two years or something like that. So maybe, maybe the number is off, but 30 million is coming to mind right now. Got okay. Maybe it was 27. I don't know. Something in that. It would, do you recall what multiple of revenue at the time it would have been? Like did, you mentioned, you thought it was worth between one and five times annual recurring revenue. What was that original offer as a multiple of annual recurring revenue at the time? Um, so that was 2016. Um, maybe like four. Four X revenue. I think. I think we we're at seven million at that at that point when we went to market. Got it. I could be totally wrong to be completely honest, but that. That would be my final answer if we were, you know. <laughs> if I was Regis Philbin, is that the guy yeah. who did the? Uh, was that the guy who did that show? I've forgotten his name. It, it, it was. If this, yeah. I would. I would. I wish I could phone a friend, but um, yeah, exactly. That, that sounds right. Okay, so that's helpful for sure. So you walked away. What next? Because my original question was, tell me about the sale. You uh, you went through this this thing with Apple. How did it go to? How did you actually end up selling it? So after the thing with Apple, um, we were approached by a private equity firm out of the blue. Hmm. Literally out of the blue. Just, hey, are you looking to sell your business? And I was like, maybe. Like, are you guys legitimate? And the funny part about that was, and another, another reason I didn't want to sell too was um, the investment bank's minimum fee was like $800,000. Um, uh, it was going to be like a huge fee on that. So I just thought, I don't know, you guys have the best job in the world. Like you just introducing me to a few people and you're going to walk away with a million bucks. Um, so once we were approached by the PE firm, our tail with the investment bank was gone. So I was thrilled to entertain offers. We weren't actively looking or shopping the company, but we were approached by ESW Capital um, they made an offer that was very generous for the company and they moved extremely quickly. And I was hesitant at first because just, I had never met you guys. I always thought an acquisition, the way it happens is they come, they meet you, they shake your hands, take six months. Um, but little did I know, um, you know, we had been in conversations with them previously. So during due diligence- that was run by the investment banker. You had ESW was one of the the companies that were in. in no, play. even before that, we were oh, just, okay. we had a conversation that I just didn't remember. And I, I only remember this part because during due diligence, when they asked for all the NDAs I'd ever signed, I found one from ESW capital. And I was like, Oh, like we talked like six years ago, like this. <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah, it just came out of the blue and the timing couldn't have been perfect. I was about to get married. So I started thinking about, you know, like, okay, like I'm no longer, you know, just a 20 something year old. Like this is a chance to really change the course of my life. Let's, let's go. And so I was, I was kind of, I was actually thrilled to get the offer. How did you, I mean, a lot of people listening to this would, would get those kinds of calls from private equity groups all the time. You know, the, 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 Hey, do you want to sell your business phone call? And some of them are legit others are less than reputable. How did you evaluate the credibility of ESW? I reference checked the hell out of them. I called probably eight CEOs that had been purchased from them. And the number one thing I was always scared about was 
I never wanted an earn out. So I never wanted to go and work at another company. I just, cause I always knew if I took like a two year earn out or something like that, I'd get to like month three and then quit. And then I'm like, okay, great. Like I got 10% of what was offered to me. Cause I just can't stand. I literally just cannot stand working for someone else. Um, not in a bad way. I just really love um, building companies. Um, so I reference checked them and their terms were all cash, uh, 30 day due diligence. So quick due diligence. But what I was looking for was insurance on would they do what they said, meaning are we going to get to the ninth inning and then we get a haircut because they found, they found something or, you know, just typical private equity horror stories that you always hear about. And I heard fantastic things across a number of different people and one person just said, if you sign that LOI, that's what you're going to sell your company for. They do what they say. And I remember the CEO gave me some advice too. He's like, I hope you don't have a drug problem. I hope you don't have a gambling problem. Um, Cause yeah, it's going to be all cash. You're going to do exactly what they said. And I was like, I don't have either of those. So, okay, great. Thanks for the, <laughs> thanks for the feedback. Um, I don't know if he was saying that cause something went wild on his end, but yeah, just did reference checks and made sure they were a credible buyer. And I heard great things and move forward. Um, in terms of the reference checks that you did, how did you identify the eight CEOs that had sold their companies to ESW? Like, was that on is ESW sort of portfolio companies on their website or how did you track that information down? They did. I don't think they do anymore. But I went on their website and I just reached out to people over LinkedIn that had sold their businesses to them. Some responded, some didn't, just like anything. Um, and I spoke to the ones that responded. And across the board, it was very consistent with the answers in terms of, you know, all cash, you know, due diligence, you know, is obviously never fun. But you get through that, they'll do what they say. Um and they were, they were, and also another part I loved about ESW was they kept the business alive and they run it for the long term. So they wouldn't buy it, turn it into Google App Builder, and then you know I can't look back on what I spent essentially, not my childhood, but like my young twenties building. So business apps is still alive. I actually built an app on it uh, the other month just for fun to kind of go in. And it felt like I was in my you know college dorm room house or whatever. <laughs> So I really like that aspect and that turned out to be true. So it's definitely the software still up. The customers are still taken care of. That was all really important to me. Um, when it comes to, were you able to uh, share uh, what multiple of revenue ESW offered you? We're still in our NDA. So I don't, I've actually never told anyone what I've sold my company for. I swear I've never told anyone outside of my wife and my team, but you could, you can add it up. I mean, the business is at 10 million revenue. PE buys SaaS companies at, you know, a two to five multiple. Things like I'm comfortable saying we had 2 million in cash on hand. They paid a one X multiple on that. Um, I own 90% of the business at close. We benefited from QSBS. So they did a stock purchase. Sorry, what is QSBS? Qualified Small Business Stock Exemption or Got Tax it. Exemption. You. Basically what it means, if you hold small business stock, I'm not an accountant, so I don't have all the details, but essentially if you hold small business stock for five years and the value of your enterprise is under 50 million, you have no federal taxes to pay on the first 10 million um, of the sale of the company. Got it. So I, Got I essentially it. paid 12% tax because I lived in California on the sale of business apps. Fantastic. Yeah, we have something similar in Canada, uh, qualifying small businesses selling the shares. But in, I think different countries, the UK has something similar. I think different countries around the world have some thing, way they kind of promote small businesses and enjoy the capital gain. If there's anything anyone gets out of this podcast, like look up QSBS because I didn't even know I, I applied for it. So as we were, you know, working with, cause we hired a big law firm, we hired Pillsbury and they were super expensive and we, but really, really good. And 
a really, really good accounting firm and we were going through everything and I was told, you're not going to have to pay any federal taxes on this. And that was huge. And that's why we, we asked for uh, the P firm to buy the cash on hand because typically when you sell a business and you dividend the cash out, you're going to be taxed as normal income or 40% or something like that. So when they bought the 2 million cash on hand, we paid 10, 12% tax on that since it was um, included in the total sale of the business. Right. Great. So the, the structure of the deal was just very tax favorable um, and allowed me to, to maximize um, the outcome personally, which I greatly appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. How did you handle the Apple saga with ESW? At what point did you share with them that five month saga? So it was, it was pretty, it was documented in TechCrunch. It was, we had like a petition. There was no way you couldn't see it. So we didn't even have to really talk about it. And it was already, the guidelines had been officially changed. I worked with the reporter at TechCrunch, um, in terms of covering the news, sharing the story. If you look up Apple 4.2.6 TechCrunch, you'll see images of business apps, mobile apps at the top. So we helped kind of share that story. And obviously when the guidelines were changed, we helped explain that as well in terms of what we were hearing from Apple. So it was really public. There was nothing to really hide. It was just, this is kind of the world of Apple. Guidelines change. We don't have control over that. Um, but we had been operating, you know, things had gotten back to normal, essentially, is probably the best way to put it. All of the apps that were in the backlog were going through just fine. We, we were hovering back around a 98% approval rate in terms of the iPhone apps that we submitted. And that 2% rejection rate that we would see would be for apps that just we knew shouldn't be in the app store. Um, just, you know, low quality content type mobile applications, Apple doesn't typically approve. Um, so things were just back to normal. Um, so I guess my question though is, you know, GSW would have obviously been aware of the, the, the liability, frankly, or the potential liability the company had on its dependence on Apple. Did you, did that, did they raise that with you or did you have to allay their concerns that, you know, who knows what the next regulation is going to be. And that could effectively, you know, jeopardize the business as, as seriously as it did in your hands. It was never like a meaningful conversation, but it was discussed and it was explained that, like I said, you know, when the iPhone five came out, we had to scramble to change our software. Um, I could name a number of different scenarios um, like I'm sure they've had to update the software with the new iPhones. They have the iPhone mini, like you have to adapt the mobile app to apply to all the screen sizes or they won't be approved. So we discussed that a lot in terms of, you know, our relationship with Apple, how we, um, you know, improve our apps when Apple makes changes. How do we get notified? That was more of the topic. Like how do we, how do we continue to make sure that our apps are up to Apple's really high bar for approval. I remember talking about that a lot in terms of just, you know, our quality control, how we, we had a lot of built-in things to ensure that apps would be approved. You couldn't even submit an app to our team unless you literally had every part of your app filled out. If you have the word Android mentioned in an iPhone app, you couldn't submit it to our team because that was something that Apple would reject. You couldn't mention Apple, Blackberry, there was all these like little approval terms. So we had like a really advanced um, and scalable system that we had built that allowed us to, you know, constantly have apps approved. So I remember we were looking at our approval rates um, pretty frequently. And again, they were at 98%. So that was most of the conversation, but really the, the biz, most of the conversation was around existing customers. So how many existing customers did we have? Um, how many existing live apps did we have? Um, and those numbers were, were pretty sizable. Um, Cause again, I, I'm pretty sure we made more mobile apps than any other company in the world. Um, so that was another focus is how do we maintain these apps? How do we keep these customers happy? How often do you have to update the applications? Because um, there was a lot of moving parts. 
And that's kind of where most of the discussion was, but yeah, it, 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 I can see it being a concern, um, but I don't recall having really any conversation around that specific topic because we had six months to show that approvals had been going well and the business was operating. Well, you, you mentioned that you've never told anybody what you sold your company for other than your wife and your team. What was your team's reaction when you told them? So I waited until we had a closing date because, so this is kind of funny. So uh, during due diligence, it was me, my VP product, my VP of engineering and my CFO. And we just locked ourselves in our conference room. And if you have like the whole exec team just locked in a conference room, everyone's going to be like, what's going on? So I told the team we were being audited by the IRS just because I didn't know if the deal was going to go through it. Because when you, when you tell your team that you're selling your company, the reaction is, am I becoming a millionaire or or am I getting fired? Like it's literally and everything in between. And I didn't want to shake up everybody without, 100% 100% certainty that this deal was going to close. So once we had an agreed close date with um, our legal team and we had completed due diligence and it was just a matter of sort of, you know, getting everybody in like closing day. And we had a formal closing day, which I'm happy to talk about, which was surreal. Um, I told, we were going to close on a Monday. I told the team on Friday and just basically brought everybody into the room and said, you know, there's going to be a change of ownership. We're selling the business. This is what I know. Um, we're going to close on Monday. When you say everybody, do you mean the leadership team, the VP engineering, VP product, or everybody in the company? Everybody in the company. And were they shareholders in the company or do they have options or? They did. All of them from the bottom down to the top. Yeah. So some had unvested shares. Some had, there were, you know, new employees with a four-year stock option, one-year clip. So everyone received, oh, and then on top of that, um, ESW Capital gave me a $500,000 bonus to do whatever I want, like to start my own next company or whatever. Literally just a blank check on top of the purchase price. And so what I did is I took that 500,000 and I distributed it entirely to my team. So on top of them benefiting from the sale of the company, um, cause I figured I was going to be taxed. Like I was already making, like I was definitely going to be the one taking most of the profits from the sale. So I took that 500 K and distributed it across um, my team based on, I can't remember exactly how I did it, but the largest bonuses went to my exec team or how long you had been with me. Um, so everyone benefited from the sale. How, how, like on a, as a percentage of one year salary, would, would, a, would, it, would these bonuses have been for folks? Would it have been like 10% of a year's salary or 50%? Um, so I distributed it to everyone in-house I think the smallest was like 10, at least 10,000. And then the biggest was like a hundred thousand on top of um, what they would get for their stock options as well. Got it. So I had this big Excel sheet that I had like everyone's name in it, like divvying up the 500 K on top of, and then I let kind of the attorneys figure out who's getting like what and stuff like that. Cause I, I sent that to um, ESW so they would, send the money directly to these people instead of just me. So I don't get taxed and then I got to send it to them. Um, yeah. What I don't was know. the reaction? Honestly, there was some cheers and there was some champagne popping. Um, a little bit of everything. We were like a family. So, and I was going to leave the company. So I had a 90 day transition plan. I had already started working on another company which I don't recommend if you're selling a business, take a break, travel the world <laughs> when things are, when you're allowed to. Um, that, that is like my best advice is like, you know, if you sell a business, celebrate the win. I, I didn't really do that. I, I started another company immediately afterwards. Um, 
So I was, I was leaving and it, it kind of felt like the end of an era. I told the team like, this isn't goodbye. This is just see around, but it kind of felt like graduating from college when you're with all your friends and, you know, you're not going to see him every day anymore. Um, so it, it was, it was bittersweet. And I, I still keep in touch. I talked to my VP product, VP of engineering, VP marketing literally yesterday. Like we all got on a call together. Um, cause we, we just built such deep camaraderie working together for so long, but yeah, it was bittersweet. I mean, it was awesome because we had really, we, we, we built the company to be acquired. It wasn't a cash flow business because we had, I had a fiduciary duty to my investors to show return on their initial investment and just believing in me at 21. So, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of high fives and a lot of sort of like, you know what, this was awesome, but you know, just like graduating college is probably the best way to explain it. You know, some Good people analysis. were really, some people were sad. Some people were like, yeah, and then everything in between. Got it. Got it. You mentioned closing day was surreal in what way? So it happened. Um, so we eventually, we moved the company down to San Diego at one point. So I flew in um, my basically everybody. So we had some employees in San Francisco because we ran it for a while in San Francisco and moved it down to San Diego so we can lower operational costs. And we were able to do that because we had a remote dev team and we mostly hired entry level customer support and sales. That's a story for another time, but I've written about it. If you want to Google like TechCrunch, Andrew Gazdecki, how did I move my company from San Francisco, San Diego? But um I was just with a few people. The wire came in right before um, the deadline, which I think is like 1 p.m. or something like that. And I was just alone in um, uh, this like conference room with my CFO. And it was just one of those like, because we were so like anxious and just like, like, is this really going to happen? Like, really, really? And I just couldn't, I couldn't see anybody. I was just so nervous and Again, it's like I, I'm coming from nothing, and then this is like a life-changing moment. So I was like, I, I was just like trembling, and then the wire came in, and um, the the associate from ESW sent me like some banker-esque text, which was like, light up the cigar, or put the foot to puff, or some some sort of slang that I didn't understand. And I checked my bank account and I just was kind of like, and then I, I had to leave the office. I had, I left immediately. I went home, um, hugged my wife. Um, I, I cried <laughs> as, as, you know, lame as that sounds. Um, yeah, I cried because it was just such a culmination of so much work. And, you know, I worked like hundred hour weeks for like eight years and we finally sold the company and it was on good terms. It was all cash. It was to a great buyer. My team was taken care of. My customers were taken care of. My investors were happy. They saw over a 10x return. Um, it just felt, it was such an accomplishment. But also at the same time, I was scared too. I was just really scared in terms of, you know, this was something I spent so long building, um, like, who am I now? Like, I remember feeling like that for a little bit. So it was also kind of a bittersweet sort of like, this is amazing. But then, you know, kind of once, you know, the, this is awesome feeling kind of hangover comes in, you start to think, Oh, what did I just do? Like, I really love that company. Um, but no, absolutely no regrets. But in the moment, it was just so emotional because, I don't know. It's just, it, your life just goes like that and it changes. And, and I had really, really good guidance from my investors as well. So I didn't do anything stupid. I didn't buy anything dumb. Um, I still haven't. Um, but no yeah. trophy whatsoever. I bought a C63 AMG. That was probably my only thing I bought. My dad um, helped uh, he, he used to be like a Ferrari mechanic and he helped design the DeLorean. So always been a car person. Uh, so I kind of bought that just, it, it reminded me of him cause he always liked muscle cars. Um, that was a one, I bought it used. So it was like, it was only 35,000. So 
I didn't buy like a hundred thousand dollar brand new, you know, AMG, but I bought that, um, bought a house for my family. That's it. Awesome. I am so grateful for you sharing this story with us. I think you shared it with so much candor and humility. I just think it's amazing. You've really helped a lot of people today. So thank you for sharing it. Yeah, that was fun going down memory lane and go like, I felt like I just kind of like re-felt some of those memories. So um, thanks for letting me share that story. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, If people want to learn about you, what you're up to next, is there a a place they could do that? What's, What's best? Yeah, uh, probably Twitter, just A Gazdecki at Twitter. Or you can add me on LinkedIn, Andrew Gazdecki. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll put the spelling in the show notes at builttocell.com, G A Z D E C K I, I believe, if I've got that right. You do. Awesome. Andrew, thanks for doing this. Anytime, John. Thanks for having me. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.